You're listening to Radiotopia Presents from PRX's Radiotopia. Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. Just a quick note before we start. This series discusses mental illness and some other sensitive topics that might not be appropriate for all audiences. Chapter 5. The Shining World. Art Buckwald, Bill Styron, and I have summer homes about a quarter mile apart on Martha's Vineyard. We go to the vineyard each summer to escape the demands of city life. And it is also the place where an unexpected bond took hold. That's Mike Wallace in a 1990s radio documentary. Back then, as host of the TV show 60 Minutes, Wallace was one of the most famous journalists in the country. It was my friends Art Buckwald and Bill Styron who forced me to face the realities of this illness. Because they had experienced depression too, they understood better than anyone what I was going through. The three friends, Styron, Wallace, and Buckwald, had all struggled with suicidal depression in the 1980s. Around that time, they decided to form a group to help each other survive. You're carrying the thing around with you. It's like a big crucifixion. doesn't matter where you are. You could be in the sublimest place you could possibly imagine. Like Wallace went down to uh, some place in the Caribbean. I remember. It's funny. I'd forgotten that, Bill. And so my wife and I took off, and we went to St. Martin down in the Caribbean. And all I wanted to do was think about walking out into that See, we had a cottage on the beach, and I didn't have the guts to do it. Had I, I swear, I would have just walked out and kept walking. And that's when I began to call this fellow. And every night, he was my... You can't see you when you say this fellow. It's radio. That's right. This fellow, too. <laughs> Buckwald. Buckwald. And he would... Art Buckwald wrote a humor column for the Washington Post, and he was probably the one who came up with the name for the group he'd formed with Wallace and Styron, the Blues Brothers. So the second stage was, I wanted to kill myself. And I knew it, and I even work it out. You work it out. You don't just want to kill yourself. You know how you're going to do it. You go to the 16th floor. You go out the window. It's all planned. Uh, my biggest fear was that the Gaulle would die the same day and I'd never make the New York <laughs> Times obituaries. 
When the three friends recorded this conversation, they had already made a pact, what you might call the opposite of a suicide pact. They would keep each other going into old age. And then, after that, they would spend eternity together. This is the final episode of The Great God of Depression. I'm Pagan Kennedy. When we left off last time, it was 2004, and a party in New York had pulled Styron out of depression. After all, his friendships had always been his best medicine. But by 2006, Styron was terribly ill. Throat cancer made it impossible for him to eat so he was hooked up to a feeding tube. Even though he was dying, his wife Rose made sure that he always had something to live for. There was always some dinner party or a visit with friends or a trip. And so when a composer transformed one of Styron's novels into an opera, Rose insisted that they go. He was uh, hanging there in that balance when Sophie's Choice Opera came to D.C. His daughter, Alexandra Styron. And we might not ever have gotten there if not for my indomitable mother. She was not going to let him miss that event. And so we all kind of packed into a plane and went down there. It was this physical live manifestation of one of my father's greatest works and told in opera, so heightening the drama and the pathos. There we all were at the Kennedy Center, and when it ended, the audience just erupted. And everyone stood up, and my father's mouth had sort of slackened at that point into a kind of permanent um, O shape. He could look at the audience on their feet for him. That was his last great outing, this extraordinary, beautiful bravo to the author. Soon after that, Styron developed a chest infection. As it became clear that his body was shutting down, doctors offered to remove his feeding tube in order to make him more comfortable. But he insisted it stay. He wanted to go on. He'd spent so many years fighting off the urge to kill himself. Which had engaged me for several months might have a fatal outcome. But in this final act, he clung to life. Everyone must keep up the struggle, for it is always likely that you will win the battle and nearly a certainty that you will win the war. He finally died from complications of pneumonia 
so he didn't die of depression. One of the things that I would like to say is I think Styron finally did defeat depression. Jim West, Styron's biographer. He toughed it out. Uh, He made it all the way. He did not take his life. He did not commit suicide. His readers had always looked to him for hope. They wanted to believe that he had conquered the disease, that he had the answers. He believed that killing himself would be the ultimate betrayal of them. And so, in a way, his death from pneumonia was a kind of triumph. He'd kept his bargain with his readers. Why don't you drive us up there? That's a good idea. Hop in. Now Bill Styron is buried in a cemetery on Martha's Vineyard. One morning when my co-producer Karen and I are on the island to interview Rose, we all pile into a van. I'd like to see that. This is reported in one book to be the oldest cemetery in New England. Now Rose leans on the fence, careful not to stumble as she opens the gate and leads us in. It's an intimate gathering here, with about a dozen graves scattered about, like guests at a cocktail party. All our writer friends are buried here. Bill and Mike Wallace and Art Buckwald. See here Mary and Mike Wallace? They all did live into old age, just as they'd hoped. And now they're here together. From here to here is our plot. So eventually I'll be buried there. Any kids who want to be buried here or there. She turns to a headstone nearby. It's etched with a golden moon and stars. And there's Bill's. I think the flowers have died. (laughs) I might take those away. Rose squats down and touches the inscription carved into the stone. It's a quote from Dante when he came back up from hell. Bill Styron's Darkness Visible ends with a quote from Dante. In the middle of the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wood, for I had lost the right path. For those who have dwelt in depression's dark wood and known its inexplicable agony, their return from the abyss is not unlike the ascent of the poet, trudging upward and upward out of hell's black depths, and at last emerging into what he saw as the shining world. And Dante concludes... E quindi uscimo a rivedere and so we came forth and so and we once came again forth. and so we came forth and once again beheld the stars and once again beheld the stars Now that we're getting close to the end of this story, I need to confess something. Before I started working on this podcast, I hadn't read Darkness Visible. 
and I was only vaguely aware of Styron's role in the history of mental illness. I came to this story through my friend Alice Flaherty, the brain scientist who cared for Styron at the end of his life. For years now, Alice has been trying to write about Styron. After all, he gave her permission. But she can't seem to find the right words. Alice is still a neurologist. And though she spent years grappling with manic depression, these days she's entirely sane, if somewhat eccentric. And then this plant was also stolen. That was from Harvard. I just took a cutting. I had to climb over a wall to get it, though. Karen and I are in Alice's backyard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Juneberry, which is edible. Alice is standing knee-high in wildflowers. An apple tree. Her husband, Andy, waters some seedlings nearby. Propagate native plants from seeds. Now, Alice leads us into their Victorian house. And he bought six donuts at that donut place in Somerville. Wow, this is getting better and better. She wants to give Karen the full tour. So this is our living room. That's Elizabeth. Her twin daughters, home from college, are glued to their computers. Her twin rescue dogs are draped across the couches in the living room. Eventually, Andy calls everyone into the kitchen. We all sit down to a dinner of foraged fiddleheads and tofu. Oh, I had my annual experience of not getting a bike ticket today, which every year they pull all the bicycles over that are running lights, and they see me and they're like, wow, you're pretty fit for someone that old, and then they don't give me a ticket. <laughs> Alice, Andy, and their kids finish each other's sentences. Why can't I wait? Why can you never wait? <laughs> The house is strewn with science projects and chewed dog toys. This, I think, is what contentment looks like. I mean, in general, my life is really good. I like not having temper tantrums every day. I like having a good relationship with Andy and not being an awful person to live with. And yet, because Alice is my friend, I know that her contentment is complicated. She sometimes feels like just a shadow of her former mad self. There were periods when I was agitated and manicky where, um, like, wonder and awe and terror would come back and forth so often in the same, you know, one-minute period that they seemed inseparable. So anything that got rid of the terror was going to get rid of the wonder as well. I would often think in a hyper-philosophical way that, you know, black and white are really the same and they're the opposite of gray. Like, gray for me was, that was the bad thing. I didn't want to be gray. (laughs) Gray was sanity, and now she's gray. For most people, like Bill Styron, Mental illness has no upside. It's excruciating and lonely. But for Alice, madness was sometimes an adventure. There was this this other kingdom, like the Night Kingdom, that was just on the other side of this world. Like right now, it's right there. When I first met Alice in the early 2000s, 
She was still in the grip of hypergraphia, the brain disorder that drove her obsession with words. Back then, Alice carried a shoulder bag full of manuscripts. She was so productive that she'd type up an essay in the middle of the night and then just sort of stuff it into that bag. About three years ago, Alice joined my writer's group. She wanted help finishing a book about how certain patients can transform their illness into an art form. She'd begun to think about this idea while she was caring for Styron, how healing could be a creative collaboration between doctor and patient, a kind of secret artwork. At some point, I was helping her to work on a magazine article about him, Or maybe it was a book chapter. Alice wasn't sure. She had so much to say about him that her thoughts kept getting tangled up. And then she stopped writing altogether. So, well, what I'm wondering about is, like, you seem like you're doing really well lately and you're, you know, you haven't been writing. So I wonder if for you, not writing is actually a sign of feeling good and being mentally healthy. You know, I, I think that's sort of true. It's not like I ever wanted to be a writer. And it was only when I got crazy that I thought I would write for other people, and it was really to prove to myself that I was sane or something. And I, I had this need to communicate that I don't anymore. And it, it's not uncommon for me to stop writing in the winter because my moods are very seasonal. Um, but it just never came back. In a way, this podcast is a product of Alice's disinterest in writing. I kept urging her to finish her chapter about William Styron. I was entranced by the story, and I was worried that she'd never publish it. And then one day, I asked her if I could tell the story. And she said, yes. listening to The Great God of Depression, a production of Showcase from PRX's Radiotopia. It's produced by Karen Brown and myself, Pagan Kennedy, with support from New England Public Radio, music and sound design by Ian Koss. Julie Shapiro is our executive producer. Thanks for additional support from Benjamin Brock Johnson, Whitney Light, Kathleen O'Keefe, Catherine Sullivan, Emily Jones, Abby Holtzman, as well as Ian Fox, Audrey Martovich, and Alex Bronstein from the PRX Podcast Garage. Thanks also to Jack Gilpin, who read for us from Styron's works. A very special thanks to Alice Flaherty and Rose Styron, as well as to Alexandra and Tom Styron. Archival material for the series came from the Rubenstein Library at Duke University, the Dana Foundation, 
1990 interview by NPR's Terry Gross on Fresh Air, produced by WHYY, and The Diane Rehm Show, produced by NPR and WAMU. We also used material from the 92nd Street Y, biographer Jim West, filmmaker Joel Foreman, and the Sun Valley Writers Conference, an annual conference where readers and writers come together to celebrate ideas. Thanks to LibriVox reader Stuart Wills for the Moby Dick excerpts. Sarah Shapiro designed our logo, and Michael Vitali and Shane Alessio performed additional music for the series. You can find photos from William Styron's and Alice Flaherty's lives, letters written in response to Styron's New York Times op-ed, and links to the books and articles mentioned in this podcast at radiotopia.fm slash showcase. Thanks for listening to The Great God of Depression. Suicide can be a difficult topic to hear about and also hard to talk about if you're having distressing thoughts yourself. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline is there to help. It's free, confidential, and available 24 hours a day. The number is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Radiotopia. From Peace.